Good morning, Watermark. So the scripture is actually going to be Matthew chapter 27, verses 1 through 26. Not what's there. Okay. So early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest picked up the coins and said, it is against the law to put this into the treasury since it is, a blood, since it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field, as the Lord commanded me. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priest and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd, when the crowd gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Thank you very much. All right, good morning, everybody. All right. Hey, the, uh, the air is working again. It's nice and cold in here. Got to keep the theology fresh. Got to, nice and cold. Um, Okay, this is, our, this is our passage today, and um, this is the point where Matthew brings everything that, that all of sort of the, the shifting that Jesus has been doing in the minds of the people about who God is and what God is doing in the world, where he brings it all to sort of coalesce in one huge event here with two or three different parties circling around Jesus, enacting what they feel um, uh, sort of God should do, right? Okay, so, and, and let me explain this. 
from the very beginning, at the very beginning of Matthew, um, even starting with John the Baptist, the message that John the Baptist is proclaiming is very much a particular view of God that the Jewish people held in, in the time of the Second Temple period here. Um, it is a view that God was going to, it's very nationalistic, first off, um, that God is going to come, he's going to wipe out their enemies, he's going to kill off their oppressors, the Romans, um, and he's going to give Israel back their land, and this is all going to be done and led by the Messiah, which is the Jewish word for king. Christ is also the word for king. Um, the word Christ is not some far out cosmic thing. It, it literally means the, the king of Israel. It means the Jewish king. Um, and what Matthew is doing from the very beginning, John the Baptist is confused when Jesus begins teaching all the way up until the point where John the Baptist is, is going to be beheaded. And he sends a message to Jesus and says, are you really the, the Messiah? Because it, it appears that you're not rising up an army to conquer our enemies and to free us and establish God's kingdom in this world, which will then spread and conquer all the other enemies. And it, it appears that he's sort of wrestling with the God that they wanted, the Messiah they wanted, and the Messiah they actually received. That is the whole point of Matthew 27. The Messiah that we want is not the Messiah that we are given. We want somebody who is strong uh, and violent and powerful in this particular way where they will hate the people that we hate, destroy the people that we need destroyed, and that somehow peace will enter into the world in this particular way. And as you work your way through Matthew, you see Jesus confronting this over and over and over in John the Baptist, in his disciples. Um, people say, you're the Messiah. And he specifically tells, like three or four times, he tells people, don't tell people I'm the Messiah. Um, because he doesn't want to stir up this revolution um, zeal that the Jewish people have, this anger and this, this violent bitterness. He wants to deal with their hearts and soften them up to turn them into a people who are forgiving and merciful and who are a blessing to the Gentiles, not a conquering people as they have perceived they should be. And so Jesus, several times, I mean, there's one time where the people even say, it, the, Matthew says, and they wanted to grab him and make him their king, and he escaped and flipped away and disappeared. And so over and over and over, the king that they want, but the king that God sent them are two different things. And it's sort of like they have created a God in their mind, and they're worshiping that God, and they're demanding that this is how God is. But the God, the face of God that they are given in Jesus, they don't necessarily want it. They're rejecting it. The Jewish leaders, the Jewish people, and they want to trade him out for someone else. And so you'll notice in chapter 27 that Jesus is not the central figure of the passage. It is the Sanhedrin, it's Judas, it's Pilate, and it's Barabbas. And Jesus is silent, but for like four or five words. And he says nothing. And there's these people sort of moving around him, revealing sort of the human heart, okay? Um, so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to focus on and teach through the other characters here. I'm going to teach first about the Sanhedrin, um, the Jewish elders made up of some Pharisees and some Sadducees, and the chief priests. Um, and I'm going to talk about Judas, the disciple of Jesus who betrayed him. I'm going to talk about Pilate um, and who these people were and what exactly they're doing here and how they're all actually doing the same thing together. 
um, and it ends up being revealed on the cross. Okay, so um, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into this, and we're going to start with the Sanhedrin. Shall, uh, shall we pray? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. I ask that right now you would be here and obviously present with us. Send your spirit of, of wisdom upon us. I ask that uh, you would give us a full, clear view of who you are, of what we are given. Let us see today, this very morning, things that we are involved in that we need to repent of. Let us see ways that we need to change. Let us be humbled in our hearts. Let us um, be humbled as it pertains to our identity in the world. May we not seek what they are seeking May we seek you, and may this open our eyes a bit. I ask that the people would be in this room would be gracious with me as I teach. That we would be dealing we're dealing with heavy things in these passages, and I ask that uh, your spirit of peace would be upon us. Thank you, Father. Amen. Okay, um, I want to remind you before I get going here. I want to remind you <laughs> that was the intro. Um, I want to remind you that uh, next Tuesday. We're doing our uh, a reasoning series. Um, I'm teaching on um, sort of a heavy topic. People debate about a lot, uh, which is what we do at the reasoning series. Um, talking about creation and evolution, how we view these things, how do we read the Bible, um, how do you deal with science if it says one thing and the scriptures if it says another, what do we do with all of this? And so I'm going to teach for a couple of hours probably on this. There will be child care. We need you to RSVP so we know how many kids are coming. And there's going to be a Q&A time. I'm going to hang out and answer questions dealing with all of this. And so maybe it'll be a time of, uh, of enlightenment. Maybe it'll be a time of frustration. We'll see. Um, okay. Um, let's start off right here with the Sanhedrin. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him and led him away and handed him over to Pilate and the governor. Now, the chief priests and the elders want Jesus executed. They want to be done with him. Messiahs are always rising up, uh, and they're always being killed. They're usually being killed by Rome because they're rising up against Rome. These ones, this, this one, Jesus, has risen up against the temple and Rome. And so they're going to find a way to have this man executed and killed. Um, they, in Jewish law, by Jewish law, they would just have him executed for blasphemy. That's the only charge they needed. Um, and Rome had given these guys... Um, full authority to rule Jerusalem as they wished. Um, however, they couldn't put people to death. Only Rome could do that. So they're going to take him to Pilate, and they want Pilate to execute this guy, but Pilate is not going to execute somebody for blasphemy because Pilate doesn't care about the Jewish people. Pilate doesn't care about blasphemy. He regularly blasphemes God anyways. He doesn't worship Yahweh. He worships the local um, Greco-Roman mythical gods. Um, so they have to have some kind of charge that's going to stick that Pilate will execute him with, okay? So, uh, Matthew doesn't tell us what they charged him with, but Luke does. Uh, Luke goes into great detail, actually, with the charges. And so I'm going to flip over to Luke chapter 23, 1 and 2. He says, Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate, and then they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes the payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be the Messiah, a king. So, if you've been paying attention, these are like half-truths, right? Like, they're just, they have truthiness, right? Like Stephen Colbert said, truthiness. And it's just truthy enough to get a man killed, right? 
And this is how politics works. Um, you're going to take something somebody said, you're going to twist it just enough to where one side feels that it's the most offensive thing other, ever, and, and the other side is going to twist it to make it look like, no, everyone says this things look the same thing. It's nothing bad at all. Um, they're playing politics to have Jesus killed. And they say three things. Uh, these are the charges, three things. They charge Jesus first with um, being a revolutionary. We have found this man subverting our nation. Now, if you've been paying attention, you know that, that Jesus actually is subverting their nation. Christianity, indeed, subverts every nation of the earth because every nation of the earth exists in rebellion to the kingdom of God, which will, is, is said in scriptures to be the thing that will reign forever. So the kingdom of God is what we are a part of. We serve a different king. We are loyal to a different, uh, to a different kingdom. Um, and so, yeah, Jesus actually kind of was subverting them, but he wasn't doing it like a revolutionary, like violently. He was proclaiming simply another kingdom. Um, and the second thing, uh, he opposes the payment of taxes to Caesar. He, he doesn't. He literally told them, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and then uses that to teach, but Caesar should render himself to God because God is the real king. Whose image is on the coin? It's the image of, it's, it's the image of Caesar. And whose image does Caesar bear? He bears the image of God. So every Caesar belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. That's the whole idea of that teaching. Um, and the third thing um, is he claims to be a Messiah, a king. Yes, he does. This is the exact claim that got Christians for centuries rounded up and killed in the Roman Empire. Um, claiming that there is another Lord, that Caesar is not Lord, Jesus is Lord. And that in every, every nation in the world, Christians should be, should be there claiming, um, the prime minister is not my Lord, Jesus is. The president is not Lord, Jesus is. The king is not Lord, Jesus is. I follow Jesus and Jesus alone. That is how the church is called to live. That is how Jesus is teaching his disciples to live. This is why the Christians were persecuted. They weren't rounded up and killed just because they were speaking truth and morality to immoral people. That's, that actually has nothing to do with it. They're rounded up and being rounded up and killed for treason, for proclaiming a different kingdom and a different Lord. So Jesus actually is doing this, but not in the way that they are presenting it to Pilate. So um, all of this is very ironic and interesting because these are the people who have been given the task of speaking truth to the Roman Empire about how great their God is, right? That Israel's God, Yahweh. But now they are joining with the Roman Empire to speak ill, actually, of God incarnate right in front of them. So the whole thing, it's like the last drop of goodness in the temple is gone, right? Like, it's, it's over. This is done. The temple is completely ineffective. Their vocation is ended. Um, so this is the Sanhedrin. This is what they're doing in the middle of the night. Illegal trial, middle of the night. Um, during Passover, no less. Uh, it's sacrilegious, at least. Um, now... Matthew 27, verse 3 tells us about Judas. Judas is going to interact with them, and it's very interesting what happens. When Judas, who had betrayed Jesus, uh, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Jesus threw, Judas threw the money into the temple and left, and then he went away and hanged himself. So Judas is at the entrance to the temple, um, and Matthew uses an interesting word here. Let me underline it for you. It's right over here. Jesus, Judas threw the money into the temple. There's two words for temple. One of them refers to temple in general, like, like the, all the, the building, the structure, all the corridors and all the pieces, 
likely even including the mount, right? And it's just a general word for the building structure. Um, that word is heron. That is not the word Matthew used when he describes Judas throwing the money. It says Judas threw the money into the naos. Um, that is specifically the spiritual center of the temple. That is, um, so let's look at the temple, shall we? This is a, a, a small-scale model of the temple. Um, and Judas likely traveled up this road, entered right through here. Um, out here we have the first main area is the court of the Gentiles. Um, in the scriptures, whenever you read about people called the God-fearers, these are Gentiles who worship Yahweh. And this is where they would worship, right here. Um, they didn't convert to Judaism. They didn't, they didn't undergo circumcision and they don't keep the Torah, but they worship Yahweh as Gentiles, as God-fearers, they're called. So these God-fearers are gathered here. So Ju uh, Judas walks through these doors, through the court of the Gentiles, and he approaches those doors and he walks through those into the court of the women, as it's called. This is the place the women were allowed to go, patriarchal system. The women were not allowed past that main gate there with the big doors, big double doors and the two side doors. Um, the women could worship here. Behind that door is where the men could go, and they could only go halfway before there was another barrier where, that kept them from the main doors at the very, very top. Let me actually back that up and show it to you again. That big structure there. Um, that structure is sort of on the inside, cut in two, and there's sort of a, a place where the elders and the chief priests would gather. Only they are allowed to go there, a very holy spot. And then right on the other side of the curtain is the Holy of Holies. So Judas plows through the doors, through these doors, through those doors, and goes to the edge, and he proclaims to the, um, he proclaims to the chief priests, he calls them out. He said, he's like, come out, come out, please, I need to talk to you. So they come out, and he wants to give the money back to them. And the question is, why does he want to give the money back first? I want to deal with that first, and then we're going to talk about why he threw it. Um, he wants to give the money back, and the question is why, and I think... When I, when I was a kid growing up, I was always kind of under the impression that he wanted to give the money back so he could reverse sort of the transaction and then set Jesus free. Like, I want to return this <laughs> at the store. Um, so he goes to customer service, like, I want to return this. Like, no, no returns, no take backs. Um, but that's not what he's doing. He's trying to make penance. This is very Jewish. He's trying to make penance because he has sinned. He has broken specific laws in the Torah by doing this. Um, specifically in Deuteronomy chapter 27, it says, Cursed is anyone who accepts a bribe to kill an innocent person. Um, here's how the Torah worked back then. If you broke the Torah, um, it could be taken care of. It could be, it could be sort of covered over. Your sin could be atoned for by offering sacrifices. But you had to go to the chief priest and you had to offer up a sacrifice. You had to confess, I have sinned. Um, if you didn't go through the process of making things right, um, you would lose your what's called justification. Um, the Jewish people, despite sort of our previous thinking of the Jewish people, they were not legalistic people. In other words, they didn't believe that they earned their salvation through good works. They never believed that. We know this now. They were, it's called a covenant gnomism. It's a big fancy word. All it means is this. They believed they were saved by faith in the covenant that God had made with Abraham. And to remain in that covenant, um, they had to keep the law the Torah, that made them Jewish. It made them different from everyone else. And so they kept the law to remain in the covenant, to remain as God's people. And so Judas has broken the law, and so he is in danger of losing his justification. If you keep the law, you are declared righteous and justified in, in that. Okay, this is how it sort of works for the Jewish people. Um, 
And so Judas himself now is worried that he's going to be thrown out of the Jewish people. He has to have his sins atoned for. And so he has to make penance. And so he brings back the money and says, I have broken the law. I have, I have, I have, I have accepted a bribe to kill an innocent person. But why does Judas care about the law? Isn't he just a traitor? No. Judas cares. He's, he's one of the Jewish people. He's just as much of a Jewish, devout Jewish boy as the rest of the disciples. And he cares about Judaism. And he cares about his people. And he cares about the kingdom of God being established. And Judas, um, most modern biblical scholars agree, Judas was likely under, under the suspicion that he was forcing the hand of Judas, of Jesus. That if Jesus could stand before these men, if they could arrest him and stand and they could question him, then he would answer them and they would see that he is the Messiah. And they would follow him as king. But the plan didn't go that way at all. Instead, what we have is Judas forces the hand of of them to bring Jesus in. He's trying to force Jesus to bring about his his violent revolution or whatever, to, to make himself king, for them to see what he sees, that Jesus is king. And in the end, Jesus is 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 condemned to die. And this is where it all breaks down for Judas because it says this. It says he was seized with remorse after it says that Jesus was, it says when he saw Jesus condemned to die, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests. He's taking it back. He's saying, no, 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 no. This is not how it was supposed to be. The weight of the Torah falls upon him and he is guilty. And so what does he need? He needs reconciliation. He needs to be made whole again because now he is cut off from the people of God. And he's terrified. Nothing is gone as he planned. Jesus is not turning out to be the Messiah that he wanted. And he's terrified. And he goes charging into the temple. And he calls out to the priest. And he says, please, take this money. I have sinned. Let's look at what it says. He says, I have sinned. Like he's he's confessing his sin. He's doing the Jewish thing in the temple. I have sinned. I have betrayed innocent blood. Literally Deuteronomy 27. He's confessing the Torah. I have broken the Torah. I need forgiveness. I've I've come with the money to make recompense. Forgive me of my sins and cleanse me. This is the part where the, the whole job of the temple priests is to reconcile this man with God. That is their job. That is why they are here. That is why they exist. This is their only job. And what happens? What is that to us? They replied. That's your responsibility. The temple has now, again, lost its last piece of its vocation. The people of God aren't even working to reconcile the people to God anymore. They are so filled with sin and hate for their enemies that they are all working together to have this man killed and then saying, I had nothing to do with that. If they actually said, we accept the money back, you have to, then what they're doing is they're admitting, we took part in a bribe and, Deuter- and, and violated the Deuteronomic law. And that makes them guilty. So they look at him and they say, we're not taking this back. That is your responsibility. They're willing to send this man out of Israel. This is you. You are no longer righteous. You are not justified. And so there's only one thing Judas can do. He has to make penance. And he hangs himself. It's the last thing he can do. Because when a community won't receive you and won't reconcile with you and won't work to restore you and won't wrap their arms around you and love you as you are, what you have done, coming to them. When 
God's people don't do this. What other options are there? The very presence of the people of God have rejected me. And he hangs himself. But on his way out, he takes that money, which is now impure and tarnished, and he throws it at the temple doors. And it's impure. And now there is impure money in the temple. And it can't be used. It can't go back in the treasury. So they take it and they buy a field for burying dead people, impure things, impure money, buying impure things to do impure deeds with. Like, it all makes sense. And in all of this, nobody wants to take responsibility. They will not help this man be made right. Now, let's move on to our third character, Pilate. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor. And the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so. That's all Jesus says. Jesus replied. Uh, And when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. And then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony that they are bringing against you? Jesus made no reply, not even a single charge to the great amazement of the governor. So here's the thing about Pilate. Pilate is actually kind of impressed by Jesus. Jesus is not cowering in fear. He's not trying to uh, get out of this. He's not saying, um, he's not defending himself. He's not pointing out their flaws in their, in, their, in their logic. He's not pointing out their lies. He's not even afraid. I imagine no one has ever stood before Pilate and not begged for mercy and begged for their life. And Jesus refuses to. And he's just standing there. And he's practicing the, dis- uh, the spiritual discipline of silence, allowing the people to say whatever they want about him and trusting God's got this, not me. I'm just going to be present and obedient here. And after a while, it appears that Pilate begins to think that he's the one on trial. Because now he's not sure what to do. Because this is obviously an innocent man. He knows he's not a revolutionary. He's seen revolutionaries. He's killed revolutionaries. This is no revolutionary. Jesus is just standing there. He's not fighting. In the previous passage, he even tells us that Jesus says, If my kingdom were of this world, we would have been fighting, but we're not. That is not how we exist and plant this kingdom. And then you have, from the outside, Pilate's wife sends a message to him. Uh, In verse 19, while Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. His wife is having visions about this guy. She's terrified. Um, he's not even sure what to do. He wants to do, he wants to keep the peace like Rome demands. Uh, so he wants to appease these guys, but he knows he's an innocent man and his wife's like, don't do it. And so he's like, oh no, I've got all these people. Um, and, and Rome is like, I need you to keep the peace. If that means killing this man, that means nothing to us. And Pilate does not want the sin of this guy on his hands. And so he begins to try to find a way out. And one of the ways that he does this is every year there's this tradition where they would release a, uh, a captive of typically a leader of the Jewish people who had been arrested. Um, and every year to celebrate uh, Passover or whatever, they release him back to the people. Um, and they're usually pretty joyous about it. Um, and so Pilate's going to use this. And so it says, it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At the time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. So um, he's going to do his best to get out of this, and he's going to offer up 
Jesus Jesus Barabbas or Jesus the Messiah? Um, Barabbas is a word that means son of the father. That's a way they they would describe the son of a rabbi. So Judas Barabbas is probably a well-educated son of a, of a, of a rabbi. Um, we have this misnomer that these were that the, the, the guys crucified on either side of Jesus and people like Barabbas um, are just like, they robbed a liquor store or something. Like that's not, it's not who they were. It's not what they did. Um, these, these were revolutionaries. These were people who rose up against Rome. You, we know you were not crucified by, by Rome unless you were a revolutionary of some kind. This is how they displayed their power to the world. Um, Judas Barabbas, he was likely taught by his father, some sort of rabbi who taught the things of God the way the people knew them and understood them and wanted the Messiah to be, and likely was arrested for teaching something having to do with violent revolution against Rome, okay? From what we know, this is likely what's happening here. And so we are faced with a dichotomy, and God's people have to choose. And this is perfect for Matthew. I love this. It all peaks right here. God's people have to choose between Jesus the revolutionary and Jesus the Messiah, the forgiving, merciful, reconciling king who shows all kinds of love and healing to the Gentile oppressors of the Jewish people, who is fully intent on reconciling enemies. And God's people now have to choose what kind of God do we really believe in? Do we really want to follow? What kind of kingdom do we really want to build? Do you want, do you want Judas, Jesus, I'm sorry, Jesus, the violent revolutionary? Or do you want Jesus, the one who forgives your enemies and reconciles you with them? Give you a hint. Nobody wants the reconciling king. We don't today either. Let's be honest with ourselves. We have enemies that we want to feel pain, that we want wiped off the planet. And God's people are given the choice. You can hear the call out. It says, which of the, which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Jesus Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Because Jesus is a threat to their empire not Rome's. And so here we have the full dichotomy of what we want God to be like and what God is actually like and then the question, when you are given the choice, which one are you going to choose? And the people are, are plain as day, they're clear. We want somebody to kill the people that we hate. We do not want somebody to forgive the people who have hurt us. We do not want to be reconciled with them. We do not want wholeness with them. We want them gone. We want them replaced by people like us. And this is where it all peaks right here, as the people called us down. And so Pilate has no choice. He releases Barabbas and says, when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took the water and he washed his hands in front of the crowd. This is a very Jewish thing. He's not even Jewish. This is the way the Jewish people would, would make themselves. This is written down in the, in, the, in, the, in the book of Deuteronomy. This is how they would cleanse themselves if they had handled a dead body or whatever, done something impure, handled it. They would bring water. So he brings water. So he, he, he sets Barabbas free, receives Jesus into his prison, 
to be executed. And then he takes the water and he does this thing for the Jewish people where he washes his hands for all them to see. And it says this, I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. Where have you heard that phrase before? The Sanhedrin, that's exactly what they said to Judas. So here we have it. All of this, in all of it, there's an innocent man and he's going to be killed and crucified. And apparently, nobody's responsible. Apparently, it's just a system that has some kind of injustice that is nebulous and we can't put our finger on it. And everyone's like, it's not me. I have nothing to do with this. It's not me. I have nothing to do with this. But the one who actually takes the guilt and the punishment upon themselves is Jesus. In all of this, an innocent man, God in the flesh, takes their sin upon himself. He takes all of their guilt and suffers under the weight of it. He takes their uncleanness. Judas is throwing the money. They're trying to get rid of the money. All their uncleanness. And he himself becomes unclean, covered in blood, stripped naked. He bears their shame, their loss of honor, all of it. He bears it all and is propped up high for everyone to see. What Paul actually later on would call the prographo of God's love, uh, the picture of God's love, it's the word for photograph. Like when you look at it, you can see it's like an a, a, a exact photograph of what God is like and what God does. He takes their curse. I mean, Judas is worried about being exiled, so he's trying to make penance. Jesus was offering him forgiveness. All he had to do was ask. Circumvent the temple, come straight to the Messiah, the king, and offer that forgiveness. And instead of suffering exile... Jesus suffers the exile. He's hanging on the cross and he cries out to the Father. He says, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. I'm, no, no, he says, sorry, I'll get there in a second. He says, he says, Father, why have you forsaken me? This is, why have you forsaken me? It's from Psalm 22. It is the cry that the Jewish people would make when they were in exile. So Jesus is taking their exile. Not only that, while he's going through all this, he cries out, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So he's even offering forgiveness to all these people who are claiming I'm not even responsible. This whole thing is a perfect picture of exactly why we need Jesus and exactly why God gave us the church. Because we live in our modern day today still in systems just like this where no one is responsible for the evil that is happening and no one wants to admit it. There is, we all know there is racism, but apparently there's no racists anywhere. We all know there is injustice, but apparently no one's committing injustice. People are being oppressed and no one's oppressing them, apparently. This is how we live. It's not, my, it's not me, it's not my response. I'm just working, living, just doing my thing. And no one wants to search and say, what part am I playing in any of this? And history moves forward and things get worse. And when it's all over, whenever all of this ends and wherever it ends up, whatever happens, 20 years from now, no one will admit to having been a part of it. None of us will. In the same way, like you look at the death camps at Auschwitz and there's a local tribe, there's a local village there right outside where these people, millions of people are being piled up in dead bodies. And there's these, there's these villagers and they're, after it's all over, they drag them over there. Look at what's happening. I had nothing to do with that. 
I was just doing laundry. I was doing the laundry for this. I, I was sewing their buttons on their uniforms. I was just working on their cars. I was just fixing the maintenance on their buildings. And none of us are responsible. And what Matthew gives us is an Israel who stands there, who, who says, we want the violent revolutionary. Kill the Messiah. And we will, his blood be upon us and upon our children. What Matthew gives us is God's people accepting responsibility. As terrible as it is. Thinking, we all did this together, so I have no individual part. We have made Christianity about our individual things. Do you, re- you realize this? We have made Christianity about, like, confession is, like, um, did you lie? Did you, did you lust? Did you steal? Did you lie on your time card? Then, then you need to confess these things, and you'll be right with God. What we are given, though, in the scriptures is this communal confession where we admit the world is broken. We took part in idolatry to break it, and God is calling us to be a new people somewhere else, to be the church, a people that exists in this world. I mean, the signs of what is happening here in this story are everywhere. A simple instance of this is capital punishment, something that Early Christians, whether you believe this or or agree with it or not, early Christians were wildly against capital punishment. You would never destroy the image of God, ever, no matter what they did. Um, And capital punishment, when you read, if you you pull up a a picture of a death certificate of someone who has died by lethal injection, you go to the bottom and you see um, cause of death. You know what they say, what it says? It says homicide. That's what it says. So someone has been killed, yet... We have attorneys who open the door to death. We have a jury that finds someone guilty. We have a judge who sentences the prisoner to death. We have a governor who like nods in approval, who signs the death warrants, death certificate. We have a clemency board that removes all the obstacles. We have a warden who oversees the execution, prison guards who prepare the guy to die, who feed him his last meal. Um, We have a death team that performs the execution, a physician who inserts the needle into the guy's arm. We have a coroner who inspects the body and pronounces him dead and writes it down. We have a body, and no one has killed anybody. This is one small picture of the communal repentance that we as the body of Christ need to take part in. This is just scratching the surface of the whole thing. The organizations of that world were broken and corrupt because their leaders and kings were human. We are not called to follow earthly leaders and kings. And every time, every time we, we look for the scapegoat, like if a, if a company like Enron, like we're, we look at the CEOs of the, the terrible things they did, and we're like, throw those CEOs in jail. The leadership, they did this. Throw them in jail. As if the leaders themselves did this. Um, when, I mean, in the last couple of years, the amount of megachurches, especially like up in the uh, New England area, the amount of megachurches, pastors that have fallen um, because of abusing women or, or um, sexual harassment or mishandling funds, the amount of them have been fired and the people say, get him out of here, he's corrupt, he's awful, get him out of here. That is not going to solve the problem. He's not the injustice. In every situation like this, CEO, boss, company, whatever, There is a collection of people, probably everyone, who in one way or another was taking part in this and allowing it to continue. 
And if we really want to purge these systemic problems and injustices in our own communities, let alone the world, um, what it's going to take is some sort of Leviticus 19 Day of Atonement kind of, kind of action, where we collectively, as the people of God, gather together and admit we have sinned. And we pronounce those sins. And we say, I have done this. I've taken part in this. I've benefited in this way. I've done this. And we collectively say, no more. Proclaim the sins. Sacrifice the lamb. And we look to the cross. And we beg for forgiveness. And we beg that God doesn't remove his spirit, but instead makes us farther enmeshed in it and makes us a people of God called out from among them to live differently in the world. The early church did this. This is how they lived. You can read the writings of, uh, uh, from the ancient writings, there's, there's, this, there's this letter from a guy named Mathetus. He wrote an epistle to a man named Diogenetus. And it says this, Christians live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. They, they played their full roles as citizens, but labor under all the disabilities of aliens. Ponder that sentence for a little while. Any country can be their homeland, but for them, their homeland, wherever it may be, is a foreign country. They realize that they have a king that is not the ruler of the place they live, and that is the king that they follow. And no matter what, come hell or high water, they will follow and stay true to this king, and the people recognized it. And oftentimes, the only solution to Christians was, you need to kill them. They're in our way. They're causing all kinds of problems. They're making us rethink everything. They're pointing out all kinds of injustices and sins, and I just can't take this anymore. Kill them. And that's how people talked about Christians, which is why Paul, when he's writing to the Christians in Rome, the capital of the empire, he tells them this. He says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and to approve what God's will actually is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Repentance, guys, is is how we claim responsibility. We confess that we are sinners and we repent of the old ways. We admit the things that we have been a part of, and we ask for guidance. And we admit that we struggle with this or with that, with viewing people this way. We're looking at the world through these eyes or whatever, and we admit these things. And instead of shooting each other down and blasting each other on the internet, we gather together and we take the bread and the wine, the body of Christ broken for them, the blood of Christ spilled for them. When we come to people, And we say, I have sinned. I have accepted a bribe for an innocent man. We are the priesthood of the saints. It is your role to look this person in the eye and say, I forgive you. Because of what Jesus has done, I have the power to forgive you. Welcome into the body of Christ. And people are going to look at you and they're going to judge you for what you did, for the sin that you committed. And that judgment is going to be passed on to us. And they're going to look at us, and they're going to say, look at them cavorting with sinners. But you know what? We're going to take that sin upon ourselves, and we're going to bear it with you. And we're together going to crawl towards Jesus. Somehow this needs to happen. I'm not claiming to have figured it out how. I just know what. And somehow we need to be a people who are unafraid to sit at the table with the other the sinner, and to admit that we ourselves are sinners, and to admit the things that we took part in in the past, the things that we are taking part in now. God is calling us to repentance. Why don't we take communion? Our communion servers can take the elements um, and spread around the room. 
As we come to the table, I want us to ponder how it brings us all together. The guilt has been cast upon Jesus. He took your sin upon himself and suffered and died under the weight of it. And now we look at him as the photograph of what God is like and what God is calling us to be like. Let us not play the games that the world is playing. Let us not be conformed to the patterns that they are letting out, that they are laying out for us. Let us be a people who have a different king, who speak actual weighted truth about who God is and who we are and about what we should do. Let's take some time in prayer as our communion servers are setting up and then, and then take some time, take some bread, take some wine and eat it and spend some time repenting if you need to. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Guide us into communion. Make us whole. The things that are broken, I ask that you would mend them the things that are lost, I pray that you would bring them back to us. Um, the relationships that are, that are in jeopardy, heal them, make them whole again. Let us be a people who aren't just pointing out the sins of others, but first are raising our hand and admitting the things that we have taken part in that are not right, that we need to repent of. When people look at us, may they see you. Thank you, Father, for all of this. In your holy name, amen. Take some time, talk to Jesus.